Community groups. Would you like to see what that looked like in the early church? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're taking a little bit of a break from Mark's gospel, and we're going to be in the book of Acts. So if you have a copy of God's Word or you have some kind of electronic device, you can scroll over to Acts chapter 2, or if you just take that bulletin that you were giving, given when you walked in, you can flip that over and the scripture reference is on the back there. Acts chapter 2, and we'll look at this together. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 41 and read through verse 47. This is the first, this follows the first sermon that was ever preached uh, after the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. We're told that 3,000 people, their hearts were cut to the quick. They were penetrated by the truth of the gospel. They saw their sin and they saw their Savior. They repented, they believed, and they were added to the church. And this describes that scenario. This is kind of a summary statement. Acts chapter 2, let's start in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. We know it's powerful. We know it's um, something you desire to unleash this truth in our lives, in our community, in our homes as we gather throughout the week. And I pray you would help us to clearly see this, Lord, um, see our need for this, to explore and discover and find ways where we can do this, whether it's a community group at Grace Life, Lord. I know some are going to be providentially unable to join one of the three groups that we offer, but I pray that they would find, explore, seek out, pray for other Christian communities, communities, Lord, that they can uh, align themselves with and, and join um, and not feel any guilt or remorse, Lord, that, that uh, they're not able to join uh, with our groups that we offer. Our prayer groups would multiply and we would be able to offer more accommodating times and um, the necessary things that logistically makes it a challenge to meet together, sometimes with bigger families and smaller children. Just help us to give all these things uh, under your care this morning, God. Remove any hindrance or distraction. This is the time that we preach your word, Lord, and we need your anointing. We need your Holy Spirit to come and open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us to see these truths, Lord, to experience them. May they resonate with us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, I can do nothing, Lord. Apart from your Holy Spirit, these, this is just dead words on a page. It's just ink, Lord. We need you to come and quicken our hearts, illuminate our minds. And we ask you to do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in April 1992, going back, April 1992, a young man from a well-to-do family hitchhiked all alone to Alaska. And he walked into the wilderness just north of Mount McKinley. His name was Christopher McCandless. He had donated $25,000. That was the total left in his savings account. 
to charity. He had abandoned his car. He had burned all the extra cash that was in his wallet. And he had invented a new life for himself. In fact, he even came up with a new identity. He called himself Alexander Supertramp. Four months later, hunters discovered the remains of his decomposing body in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. The circumstances surrounding his disappearance and his death puzzled everybody because this kid had grown up in an affluent neighborhood with an affluent family in D.C. He had excelled academically. He had enjoyed healthy, flourishing relationships. He even had a a great community of of other athletes that uh, he excelled with. But upon graduating from college in 1990, he went off the map, off the radar, off the grid, and he disappeared. Christopher McCandless did. So you, you've probably heard of this guy. His, his story has been the subject of articles, documentaries. They even made a movie about him. And, and today, I just noticed, just kind of researching this, people today are still debating what went wrong. Or some people think, what went right? Maybe we should all do what he did. Um, why did he do this? Well, Chris had a stubborn streak of individualism in him. He'd suffered from bro- some broken relationships in his family. He'd been lied to. Uh, he hadn't been abused, as far as I can tell, sexually or physically, but his parents had lied to him about um, their marriage and about their family. And so his solution was to run away, to reject society, to despise civilization, and to trek into the middle of the wilderness to pursue a glorified isolation, alone and on his terms. He wanted to live life alone on his terms. So he concluded that since relationships are hard and complicated, and if you engage in community with other human beings, it's going to be challenging, you're going to be hurt, you're going to be sinned against. His new plan was solitude. He was going to live the rest of his life that way. So this kid read some survival guides. Um, He got some books on local plant life in Alaska where he was going to be going. He packed away some Jack London novels, and he headed into the wilderness, into the wild. That's actually the name of a book that was written about him by John Krakauer. But he died in the middle of a lonely Alaskan wilderness. Um, He suffered the slow, agonizing death of starvation. He was alone. He was afraid. An autopsy report revealed that when he died, he weighed 67 pounds. 67 pounds. His normal weight was 140 He died inside this abandoned rusting bus he called the magic bus that was kind of a makeshift shelter for hunters and hikers. And he taped this ominous note to the door of that bus when he was out gathering what would be his last meal, I guess. This is what it said. Check this out. Attention, possible visitors. SOS, I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. That's haunting, isn't it? But that's not nearly as haunting as the last four or five words that were found in his diary beside his bed that he died on all by himself. This is what it said. Happiness only real when shared. Happiness is only real It's only authentic and genuine and powerful, you might say, when it's shared with other human beings like you. Before he died, Chris realized and actually confessed something critical about human existence. God intended for us to share our life with other people. His quest for meaning apart from relationships literally killed him. His family, his friends who could have helped him, 
had no idea where he was. I mean, he even buried the license plate on his car. He didn't want anybody to find him. He was done. He was done with people. He would rather go out in the middle of the wilderness and share his life with animals, you know, than with people. He had cut off all means of contact. This is, uh, this is the last picture. This was in 1992. This is pretty impressive. He had one of those cameras and he figured out how to, uh, he figured out how to use them. This is the last picture he took of himself. Do you see how gaunt he is there? 67 pounds. He's waving goodbye because he knew he's starving to death at this point. He knows he's not getting out of there alive. There was a huge river. The snow had melted. He couldn't cross it. He was too weak and he was hundreds of miles from anybody that could really help him. So one of Christopher's friends recalled an argument he had had with Chris about relationships. And Chris said this, you're wrong if you think joy comes mainly from human relationships. God has placed it all around us. It's in everything we might experience. We just have to muster, we just have to muster the courage to turn against our habitual lifestyle and engage in unconventional living. Now listen, to many people that sounds really radical and adventurous. In fact, Christopher McCandless is a lot of people's hero. They, they laud him as this is everything that humanity is. This is everything that we should aspire to be. They think his plan was bold. They think it was courageous. And they sympathize with him. They romance his little adventure here. Because they say he was a nonconformist. He was against greed, materialism, power and abuse and authority. He was a poster child for kind of the individual rebellion that a lot of people take up. And listen, I don't want to trample on his grave, okay? It's tragic what happened, but I couldn't disagree anymore. <laughs> it doesn't take courage to leave, guys. It takes courage to stay. That's the hard thing to do, is to live in relationships that are messy, right? That are awkward, that are a challenge. Because you don't have to go very far to find trouble. Find another human being and you'll find trouble, right? Because sin impacts the way we live with other people. It impacts the way we share life. In fact, not too long after this beautiful description of community in, in Acts chapter 2, you'll find, and there arose a conflict, chapter 6. There arose a dispute. These new Christians that had just been let out of prison, metaphorically speaking, forgiven of their sins, loving one another, they began to argue and fight and quarrel. Now, they found a solution because that, you know, that's just part of living together. But it doesn't take courage to, to leave. It takes courage to stay. But staying is costly. It will cost us. But the rewards uh, far outweigh the cost. But could we be honest this morning? Have you all experienced a little bit of the frustration that this young man voiced? Haven't we all felt like that a little bit? I talk to people all the time as a church planner, and they're done with church, they're done with community because they've been hurt, they've been exploited, they've been lied to. There was maybe spiritual abuse, maybe a, a, a rigid authoritarian structure in the church that was like top-heavy, uh, and they felt... They felt hurt and, and exploited and taken advantage of. So it's tempting to say enough of this. I'm done. I'm never going back to that. But I want you to look together with me at this passage because the title of this message is The Power of Community. There was a power that was present here when these new believers gathered together with other Christians that just minutes before had absolutely nothing in common with them. They didn't have any political affiliation. In fact, some of these people, if left alone in a room without the Holy Spirit, would have killed each other. I'm serious. Some of them were uh, headhunters for the other groups. But put the Holy Spirit in there, and there's this deep and abiding sense of unity and love, camaraderie that the world doesn't understand. But listen, the world stood up and took notice of this because they had true power. 
So this is the first Christian community, and what can we learn from it? And that's kind of the outline this morning. How does community, even outside of corporate worship like this, how does it empower us? So let's look together at this outline here. I don't know if you guys can see this. This is our outline, the power of community. Three things we see in this passage about community. Number one, um, up and worship. Community, Christian community, connects us to God. It helps connect us to God. Point number two, in with fellowship. You can see the little symbols there. One is up in worship. Christian community connects us to God. Secondly, uh, Christian community connects us to one another. And third, Christian community connects us to the world, to unbelievers that desperately need the message and the shared life that we have that hopefully we're, we're willing to offer. So let's look at those together. And I just want to give you a little bit of a warning, okay? Um, just as a pastor, sometimes when we read a narrative like this, uh, you're not going to find really any commands kind of in the book of Acts because it's all narrative. It's just telling the story. How did the church come into existence? The birth of the church, uh, the expansion of the church, how did it grow? And the extension of the church, how did it reach the entire planet? This is just the story of how the Holy Spirit, the, the work that Jesus began in Jerusalem, spread everywhere to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world. And we have to be careful when we study a passage, a narrative like this, because so often we make it prescriptive, saying we have to do this and this and this. Um, there's certainly some things to learn from this. If you, wanna, if you want to be, if you want to say, uh, we want our church to be attractive to the world, you don't have to buy into all the cultural trappings that a lot of secret churches do. Just read the book of Acts and see what these men and women did. So in that sense, this is going to be valuable for us to look and say, man, they had a power. What was their secret? How'd they do it? And Jesus shows us their story here, and we can learn a lot from it. So number one, up in worship. In community, we connect to God. Look what they did here. After they believed, the verse 40, 41 says, those who received the word were baptized, so they publicly identified with Christ. They were not ashamed, and that came with a cost. You know, it wasn't in vogue to belong to Jesus at the time here. They, they were going to face persecution and suffering and be ostracized by the, by the leaders that were in existence in that day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, even the, uh, the priest and the high priest. So they were baptized, they identified with Jesus, and they were added to the church. Yes, the church had a membership then, I believe. They kept a, a number of the people that were added. Um, and then look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, there's a lot more in this passage, but I just want to point this out. That word devoted, the 10, not getting all geeky on you up here on, on the Greek language here, but that verb is in the tense. It's, it's an action that was accomplished that has ongoing effects. It's called the imperfect tense. And that always struck me as a seminary student. Why do they call it imperfect? Because it seems to never be completed. It's imperfect. It's not finished yet. They devoted themselves again and again and again and again. And they're, they're constant. This is a never-ending thing. It didn't just happen one time and then they were done. It's an imperfect verb tense. In fact, this entire passage is pregnant with imperfect tenses. I think seven different times. What they're doing here, they consistently did it over and over and over. And so the effect that we see here wasn't just a one-time thing. This wasn't a one-hit wonder. This was something that these people constantly gave themselves to. That's what the verb devoted means. It means to give yourself away to a thing constantly. So what did they give themselves away to? The apostles' doctrine, which was everything that Jesus taught the apostles before he died. 
And even after he rose from the dead and he was with them 40 days, he's giving them apostolic teaching and they were passing that along to the new church. Now they were studying the Old Testament scripture too, um, but there's doctrine here. There's Bible study, you could say. They're studying the scriptures. They're listening to the apostles who had authority from God to speak the truth. They're praying together. They, they are uniting, petitioning the Lord, requesting fresh power, uh, requesting for God to give them favor with the people and give them power to heal, to validate the Christian message. And God answered their prayer. So this is up in worship. They are connecting to God. That's what this experience was for them. Um, They are devoting themselves to this. This word is used in other places. It's used to describe the 120 people who gathered together in an upper room and they devoted themselves to prayer for 10 days straight and then the Holy Spirit came down in prayer. Same word that's used there. It means to utterly and completely to give yourself away. It's an action with ongoing results. And here's what's really interesting to me. Check this out. Look at verse 43. And man, if you have a pen or pencil and, and you're not superstitious about writing in your Bible, which you shouldn't be, underline this, circle this, or at least plant it in your head. And all, I'm from Arkansas, it's hard for me to say that word, okay? A-W-E. All came upon every soul. Every soul. I think this includes believers and unbelievers. What was taking place in those gatherings? And by the way, just about every conversion you see in the book of Acts and just about every miracle performed is not on the Sabbath day or it's not on Sunday. It's usually in the middle of the week, outside of the temple, in homes, in the marketplace. It's incredible to see how God works outside of Sunday's gathering, right? They met together to be equipped, and they scattered to evangelize, to saturate, and to serve their city. And the Bible says in these little community groups that met together, everyone was in awe. Now, that word is phobos. It's phobia. It means fear, but it's not the kind of fear that we would think about as Americans. It just means these people were absolutely astonished at what they were seeing and experiencing. They were thunderstruck. Yes, there were miracles, there was healing, there were signs, there were wonders. There was a lot of stuff going on at this time. And also, at the same time, people were being absolutely transformed. People who were greedy before were becoming radically generous. People who were afraid had astonishing supernatural courage and boldness to go out and and preach about Christ. They saw people who maybe were enslaved to lust that became pure and, and, and chaste. They saw people who were angry, who became calm and, and, and kind. People who were maybe thieves before became radically generous. Uh, people who were radically insecure became just anchored and were able to focus on other people. They saw all these things and they knew this was a supernatural power that was alien to them. They had never seen or experienced anything like this and it made them just be astonished. Every time they were at these meetings, they left astonished. And listen, The people, the unbelievers who were witnessing this, they were astonished too. That's what this community group had. This power came from surrounding themselves with people who made it really hard to forget the gospel. You guys know this? It's so easy to forget the gospel when you don't build reminders into your life. Now, we have them in the church. You know we have ordinances? This is one ordinance, preaching the word of God every single week, preaching the gospel. That's an ordinance. It's a reminder of the good news. Secondly, we have baptism. You were buried with Christ. You were raised to walk together in newness of life. That's a picture of the gospel. We have the Lord's Supper, the first Sunday of every month. That's an ordinance, and that's a reminder of the gospel. But outside of Sunday, do you know you also have other reminders that you can accumulate? Do you know what they are? One another. 
Did you know one of the greatest means of grace that God has given us is each other? You know, whenever you read a book on spiritual disciplines, we read about Bible study, prayer, evangelism, journaling, solitude, corporate worship, and all those things are amazing. So often what I find is lacking or missing from the list is gathering together with each other. You know, it's hard to forget the gospel when you surround yourself with faithful reminders. Because listen, I am a weak man and I need reminders every single day in my life that Jesus is still rescuing me. The gospel really is true. It really is good news. He really does care. He really does love me. He really isn't leaving and going anywhere. And he knows the deepest, darkest secrets of my life and my heart. See, these people were reminding each other of that. And they were witnessing the ongoing, consistent power of the gospel. And it had this effect. Ray Ortland said this. Check this out. He said, the early Christians were not wringing their hands and moaning, what's the world coming to? Just time out. Do you see that a lot with churches today? Do you see that on social media? You know, I'm, I'm your pastor. I've been here three and a half years. I don't rant very much. I just don't. People find that off-putting. There's no need. But I can tell you one thing that makes me so angry and makes me want to rant is when I'm on social media, limit myself because I know myself, and I see Christians complaining, bickering, the world is so dark, what happened to our Christian nation? And I get it. I know the lamentations. I feel them too. But you know the message that that sends to people? The message that sends to unbelievers? Listen to what Ray Ortland said. He said, the early Christians were not wringing their hands like doomsday preppers. Oh my goodness. What's the world coming to? They were rejoicing and declaring, look who has come to the world. Do you see the difference? They're not wringing their hands. They're not angry. They're gathering together and they're saying, Jesus is creating something new here. They were just so astonished at the gospel. The darkness outside, it didn't penetrate their hearts. They were walking together in the light, 1 John 1, 7. They were penetrating the darkness. That makes all the difference in the world. When we lose our awe of God, we lose our effectiveness as missionaries. We really do. When you are in awe of something, you're so astonished at something, maybe a breathtaking scenery, um, maybe you're seeing the ocean for the first time like I did when I was 22 years old and came to Florida, I was blown. I'd never seen anything like it, you know? There's not even a great lake in Arkansas. There's just ponds, fish ponds. And I came and saw the ocean, and I ran out. It was the middle of the night. I ran out and started swimming in my blue jeans. And people were saying, there's sharks out there, buddy, and they feed at night. <laughs> I was like, I don't care. This is awesome. But when you see something like Niagara Falls or breathtaking, majestic mountains, what do you do? You take a picture, usually with yourself in it now, right? And you share it with other people. You talk about it. Or you find a, maybe you're a nerd like me, and you find a new Netflix documentary. What do you do? You share it, man. Because you're in awe. You're astonished at it. You can't keep it to yourself. These people never lost their sense of awe. Again, that verb, they were in awe. It's in the imperfect tense. They never lost this awe. So often we do because we don't engage in what these people did. The, the early Christians had this community throughout all the week. So their hearts were captured by the gospel and they couldn't quit talking about it. And listen, you and I help us to do that. You and I are, are going to show the gospel to one another um, we're going to hear people's needs in our community groups. We're going to be able to speak truth into their life um, in a way maybe other people can't. Does that make sense? So I've told you the story of C.S. Lewis. He wrote about he and two other people that were the closest of friends. And they were aging, they were getting older, and one of those friends died. He passed away. And Lewis said, I thought, well, the only redeeming quality of this is that I'll get more of my other friend. I won't have to share him with somebody else now. And he said, but he found, to his astonishment, 
that since their third partner, you know, had, had gone off, had died, passed away, he found that he didn't get more of his friend, he got less of him. Because the third companion, uh, you know, the third man out, was able to bring about qualities that Lewis couldn't. Does that make sense? Am I on here still? Does that make sense? Uh, each of us has our own unique contribution when, we, when it comes to Christian community. And I see that. I host a home group in my home every week. And I see that coming out as we converse together, as we confess sins, if we, as we request prayer, pray over one another, talk about the message, talk about the Bible. I see that. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you think about it, churches are like the showroom floor of the gospel. That's where we prove the power of the gospel. That's where it's, it's the rubber meets the road. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite historical figures. Um, he was a, a preacher in Britain and England. He started out in Wales in the early 1930s. And it was interesting, I read the account of a witch who, a spiritist who lived um, in the community that he was in. And every Sunday, she would walk by that church. She would hear the singing. She would be so intrigued by that little community that was in there. But it scared her. You know, she knew something powerful and supernatural was taking place there. Well, eventually, she mustered up the courage. She went inside. She heard the gospel. And bam, God converted her. And she was a member of their church. And she told Martin Lloyd-Jones later, she said, you know, something stood out to me and what happens in this community and what I was going to with my mediums, my, my psychic meetings, she said there was something similar, but there was something different. She said both of them, there was a power that was present. Both of them, something supernatural was happening. Happening, She said, but in your church, it was a clean power. It was a clean power, which is interesting because the Spirit of God is a Holy Spirit, right? He's a clean spirit. But she recognized something powerful is happening there, and she was astonished by it, especially when she was... You know, joined it as a member. People who have been liberated from sin and have been released from the tyranny of Satan, they're happy people. And meeting together energizes them. Listen, even when you're an introvert, I know the, the distinctions people make, the personality test. They say if you are an introvert, then being around people drains you. If you are an extrovert, being around people energizes you. I get that. I get those distinctions. But listen, I'm a little bit of an introvert too. You may not believe that since I'm the guy that's up here talking all the time. But when my home group leaves, I'm exhausted, but my adrenaline is flowing, man. I love it because of what happens, because we are all in awe of the gospel. I think I can speak for my group when I say that. Um, that's what happens. Listen, we had, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty, I promise. We had a prayer meeting the other night. Every fifth Wednesday that, that comes along, we try to do this. Uh, so that maybe all of our home groups can meet in one house. And we met at the Joe and Marilyn Nugent's house a few weeks ago. And we met together. We read some scripture. Uh, some of us had fasted that day, which, you know, you're not supposed to talk about it, but it's already happened. Some of us fasted together, and that was where we were going to break our fast. We were praying for our church, for one another, our city, for our witness, for people who were hurting and whose marriages were on the rocks, um, who were suffering from illnesses and, and so forth. And we met together that night, we prayed, we read scripture, and for, I don't know, for about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, we just prayed, and Joe led the meeting, he did a wonderful job, kept us on, on different themes, praying for leadership, praying for a building one day, praying for one another, um, praying for our children's ministry, and I got to tell you, man, I haven't really talked about this to a lot of people, but when I got home, I told my wife, I said, I think I floated, I think I floated home, and it's a 20-minute drive to their house from my house. I said, I've never experienced anything like that. Now, I'm ashamed to tell you that because that should be a regular part 
of our Christian lives when we meet together with other people and we pray and we share our burdens. But I'm just telling you, the Spirit of God was there. And I've never experienced anything close, 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 close to this as I did that night. There was a power that was there. We were in awe. We were weeping together. We were praying uh, for one another. And when I left there, I was just astonished. And I was so thankful for this joyful, happy, energized little church. Listen, listen to what this says, the last part of this passage here. It says uh, in, verse, in verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Oh yeah, that was the other thing we did. We broke bread together after we prayed, and I was starving, so maybe it was just a stomach thing. I don't know. But it was amazing. It was such a, it was such a powerful time for me, and I think for the people that were there. These people were happy. They were joyful. They were praising God. They were sharing their lives together. So that was up in worship. Um, and listen, that was doctrinal purity, right? But we need more than doctrinal purity to just tell the gospel to people. We need to show what Jesus has done. And you know what that requires? It requires relational beauty, which is the second point here. Second point is in for fellowship. First, there was connecting to God up and worship. Secondly, connecting to one another and fellowship. In community, we connect to one another. And that, that word fellowship is a Greek word, koinonia, and it means to share life. It means to participate. It means to give yourself away to something, kind of like the word devote. Look at all the things they were sharing in this passage. They were sharing food with one another. They were sharing their belongings with one another. They were sharing their lives with one another. They were probably weeping together. They were rejoicing together. They were sharing their victories. They were sharing their losses, their crises. They were loving and living together every day. And the reason this is so important and you don't even need a, a crazy preacher up here to tell you this. Did you guys know that you were hardwired to live in community with other human beings? It's built into your DNA as an image-bearing creature created by God. In fact, one of the most astonishing things you'll read in the Bible is Genesis 2.18. Because there's this catalog list of God did this and it was good, it was perfect. God said this, God created this, and it was good. And then it comes to man. And God created a perfect man, and he put him in a perfect environment, and he was perfectly relating to himself, to God, to all the creatures around him, to the environment, to his planet. There was harmony, there was unity, there was peace, there was joy, and then God said this, this is not good. Are you like me when you're reading that? This is before the fall. This is before the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, and they ate the forbidden fruit and plunged humanity into darkness and corruption. This is before that. God is looking at his perfect creation and saying something's not good here. Does that not grip you? What was it? Was there a design flaw in Adam? No. God is saying this is not flawed. It's not sinful. It's not bad. It's just incomplete. See, God is a community. This may sound heretical, but listen to me. When you're reading Genesis, that passage, I think in 127, says, let us create man in our image. See, God is an our. That doesn't mean that we believe in polytheism. It just means there's a trinity, tri-unity. There, there is the Godhead. He's one God in essence and, and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. See, community existed in eternity past within the Godhead before God ever created anything, an angel, a person, an animal, a planet, a solar system. 
And so when Adam was the only living, breathing human being made in God's image, he could not accurately show the world what God was like by himself. That's pretty radical, guys. That's deep theology. I know. Put your scuba mask on here. Go with me. We cannot completely and accurately show the world what God is like when we're all alone. It's impossible because God is in us. And if we're just a me or a my or an I, there's an incomplete demonstration of who God is and what he's like. See? And that's why this community had such power. We're hardwired for this, and we seek out so many different counterfeits for this. We do. Social media is one of the counterfeits, I believe, um, that we seek out. And I don't, listen, again, I'm not guilting you here, but because it's so hardwired into our genetic makeup and our DNA, we will seek out community one way or the other. And some of those things are just, they're not shallow or, or superficial, but they're just common interest we share. People get together all the time. There's like food groups, there's book clubs, um, there's CrossFit that people join in together. That's not wrong or sinful, but as a Christian, you need more than that. You know, you need more than that. People aren't at CrossFit being in awe of what God is doing, right? Not in the same way that these people were, not at all. You can be in awe over a good book, and I am, or a good documentary, and I am, but that's not the same kind of power that we see here. Um, check this out. So this is, uh, as far as I know, an unbeliever who's a member of a CrossFit gym. See if you can hear some themes and parallels in here. Check this out. My CrossFit gym is everything to me. I've met my boyfriend and some of my very best friends through CrossFit. When my boyfriend and I started apartment hunting this spring, we immediately zeroed in on the neighborhood closest to our gym. Even though it would increase our commute to work, we did this because we couldn't bear to leave our community. CrossFit is family, laughter, love, and community. That's the second or third time they mention that word community. I can't imagine my life without the people I've met through it. Now, do you hear that theme? It's, I need these people. I love these people. They're my everything. I can't imagine life without them. I'm willing to radically sacrifice and inconvenience myself to remain a part of this. See, people in the world understand this sometimes better than I believe Christians do. Because, you know, if there's anything that's going to inconvenience us, it's like, ah, I don't know, pastor. Come on. Meeting with people I barely know outside of the Sunday gathering, that's going to crimp my style. Why do we think and believe that way? Why, do we, why is that our mindset? It's because we live in a very ruggedly individualistic culture today. You guys know that, right? You, it, this is the air you breathe. That is why malls are, are closing down left and right. Did you know that? You better enjoy the mall experience while you can. They're not going to be around much longer. You mark my words. Department stores are closing down. Amazon shopping is through the roof right now. Did you know that? Um, Apple is now the only and first U.S. company recognized that's worth over $1 trillion. Why is that? Because they supply the gadgets you need to connect with other people in the privacy of your own home. It's so convenient. But I got to tell you, it doesn't have this kind of power. It doesn't. So don't believe the lie. It's okay. Connect. You know, connect globally if you want to on your social media, but those are going to be poor substitutes for the kind of companionship that God created you and I to have together. It really is. Um, Billy Graham said this, churchgoers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame aglow. When they separate, they die out. See, there's this power when Christians are together. It's undeniable. It's necessary. 
Solomon knew this. In Ecclesiastes, he said, Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. You guys see that, right? An army is more powerful than a soldier. There's a band of brothers. There's this camaraderie that we all need to fight sin together, to encourage one another, to watch over one another. Do you know what really made the world sit up and take notice when these people shared their life together? Their little gathering, it wasn't superficial. It wasn't just that they all voted the same party. You know, they all ate sushi and played frisbee golf and enjoyed moonlight walks on the, you know, the Dead Sea. It wasn't that. This transcended all of that. This transcended their culture, their race, their gender, their political affiliations. Like I told you, just moments before, these people had nothing in common. And now the one thing they had in common was that they were all sinners redeemed by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were united. And that was supernatural, and the world had never seen anything like that, ever. And that's why there was awe by everyone, believers and unbelievers. It's why they had favor with the people even outside the church. A little bit later in chapter 4 and 5, it says that the people esteemed them highly. Why? Because they loved each other. They served their city. Remember I told you about the Cyprian plague in 450 AD? All the Romans fled the city because they were scared of dying. And all the Christians infiltrated the city and served the sick at the cost of their own life. And then Christianity began to flourish and thrive in the Roman Empire. How? Because all these people that had nothing in common before were united through God, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit and you know, brought the world to its knees, brought an emperor to his knees. It's pretty astonishing when you see it. But here, here's the really twisted part, and I want to get in your kitchen a little bit, okay? Because I know you, you're like me. I enjoy being around people on my terms. I want to pick the people I want to be with, right? Because some people drain me, right? Any takers? Anybody want to be honest up in here this morning? Some people drain you, right? It's inconvenient. It's a burden, but the New Testament recognizes that. It says, bear one another's burdens. And you know what's implied in that command? Is that you're sharing them with each other. You're together and you're explaining, hey, look, I'm really burdened by this right now. I'm really troubled by this. I just got this serious diagnosis, this tumor that's uh, malignant is the bad one, right? Somebody help me out here. I'm an idiot from Arkansas. I forget stuff like that. Yeah, when you get that, who are you going to share that with? See, it's easier when you're already in community to share those burdens. Sometimes when there's no connection there, I see it all the time as a pastor. A crisis hits, this person's already isolated themselves. They bought the lie. Well, I'm connected on social media. Well, share your burden with your social media buddy and see how that goes. It doesn't always go the right way, does it? They're isolated. And listen, the great devouring lion, Satan, you're easy pickings for him when you're isolated. Just like the African Serengeti, those wildebeest. Which ones do the lions pick? Not the ones that are gathered together in strength, no. They pick the ones that are sick, that are weak, that are left behind, that are isolated. That's always the way it goes. We just discovered termites in our home. So, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I heard an audible groan. Uh, I'm a carpenter, folks. It's okay, right? So this floor that I laid when we moved in three years ago, my son walks over and says, Daddy, look, and pokes his finger through it. And all these termites are like, ah! They're everywhere. So I'm like, oh my word, man, it's just one more thing, right? So finally, I got around to tearing that floor up, and man, <laughs> I should have included the video. I took a video. I wanted my wife to freak out over it. Termites, they were, there was not dozens, there weren't hundreds. I don't even think there were thousands. I, I think there may have been a gazillion termites swarming all over the place. Like, I could hear them munching. I was there by myself when I pulled the floor up, and I could hear them smacking their food going, 
What's up, boss? They were eating the floor that I installed. And so we're doing some research, and guess what? Because I vacuumed all, I vacuum all those suckers up, and I burned the vacuum bag. I did, just to be cruel, kind of. But anyway, um, I burned the wood. I burned the vacuum bag. I got rid of them, and I'm like, okay, now here's the thing. I know there's still termites in my house. I know there are. I know there's ones that are like, ah, and they're like, ah, trying to get away, and I couldn't suck them up in the vacuum. So what about them? They're going to go start their own colony, right? So I start researching it, and we get a Terminix guy, and he said, oh, no, 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 don't worry about that. If you cut off one termite from his colony, he'll be dead in two hours. Did you know that? Man, that's good news. Good deal. Thank you, Lord. Do you know why? Because termites are blind and they're deaf. And they need moisture. And their nest is where moisture takes place. I don't know if moisture takes place. It's where moisture exists, okay? And they, if you cut off their return to that community, to that colony, to that moisture, they're done. They dry up, they shrivel up, and they die. That's good news for me. And listen, we can learn a lot from a termite. <laughs> you know that? When you cut yourself off from the colony, the community that God gave you, you know you shrivel up. You may not die, but you're withering, man. You're hurt. You're injured. You're like Christopher McCandless. Please help me. I'm all alone. I'm injured. I'm near death. I'm too weak. I can't do it on my own. That's why God gave us this amazing gift of grace called each other. You know, each of us, are called together, you know, the, we're, we're called a body, we're called a family. When one member of the body suffers, what, when you hit your finger with a hammer, Kyle, what do you do? You probably never hit your finger because you're more accurate than me. Or when you drill bit yourself in the hand, <laughs> when you grab it, right? You're like, oh, one member of the body grabs the other. That's a picture of what the body of Christ is supposed to function like. We're, to get, we're stronger together than we are divided. Definitely, we suffer better together, we serve better together, we witness better together. There's a camaraderie. There's a power there. But we prefer a cocoon to a community. I had a, I had a slide up. Can you put a slide up here? Um, you guys aren't going to be able to read that, are you? This is Sherry Turkle. She did a TED Talk called Connected But Alone about social media. And see, she's a social psychologist. Uh, but man, she pointed out things we already know, probably, hopefully, if we're a Christian. It's neat when the Bible says something and then somebody who's an unbeliever says the same thing. And you're like, see, we already knew the Bible. But she said, we expect more from technology and less from each other. So we're designing technologies that will give us the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. See, we like that. We like community on our terms, my way, like Burger King, right? I want community, but my way, on my terms. Um, we turn to technology to help us feel connected in ways we can comfortably control. Human relationships are rich and they're messy and they're demanding. And we clean them up with technology. And when we do, we shortchange ourselves. See, even a psychologist can tell you what the Bible to told you. But now here's a Christian. Give me the next slide here. And by the way, this is Jonathan Holmes. And he is going to be the featured speaker at our Beholding and Becoming event coming up here in November. And you want to hear this guy. He wrote a book on friendship that Melissa loaned me that I'm going to steal and keep probably. But the whole book is amazing. And this is just one small section of the book. Uh, but he's going to speak at this event, and this whole church is invited. And I want you to consider and mark your calendar. You'll hear more about that later. Here's what he said. For all of the conveniences and advances in technology that purport to connect us, loneliness and depression persist. Email, Facebook, Twitter, and all the rest, which promise to make relationships easier, often function as relationship substitutes. The inherent promises of Facebook that you can be connected to everyone, be friends with everyone, quickly leave their users disenchanted and even depressed. Can anybody relate? 
That's why I really, don't be offended if you're tagging me or something on Facebook. I hardly ever get on there anymore just because I know myself. Maybe you're not like me. I have an addicted personality and that's one of my weaknesses. I'm like, squirrel, shiny thing. I'm all over the place. So, you know, I, I feel connected somewhat through social media, but my true connection happens at my community group. All right, moving along here. Um, just one, I got to pick what I share here. W- one more benefit. David Sunday. I want you to listen to this quote, guys. Because, see, community groups, sometimes they're like a 401k. It's an investment. It's a sacrifice. It's costly. It's inconvenient. You don't immediately see the fruit of it, right? It's hard. It's messy. It's challenging. Like a 401k. How many of you have signed up for that? And you could really use that money that week. You could really use that night off this week from community group, right? But listen, you got to take the long look. See, you're going to experience things, hear things, see things, be given things in a community group. And this applies to church too. You may not need right at the moment. But like the 401k, you're going to be glad later that you were there. Check this out. He said, he said this is a sermon. He said, you're here today, but your presence here today is not just for today. It's for five years from now, 20 years from now. It's for a time when you may find yourself alone in a cancer ward or isolated from Christian fellowship in a desolate place, or in prison for your faith, or in terrible turmoil, with, turmoil within your soul, or alone at home in the middle of the night after you've buried your loved one in the ground. You cultivate today the means of grace for sustenance you may need way down the road. There are seeds that are being planted today in your heart that may not blossom into full fruit until many days from now. Through all these ordinary means of grace, God is weaving a tapestry of remembrance to sustain you in days to come when your soul may be famished, when you may feel lost and alone. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Guys, you're not just gathering a church just for today. You're not just joining a community group just for today or this week. You're making a 401k spiritual investment for maybe a future time when you are withering, you're shriveling up, and you desperately need what that community was able to provide for you. So, oh my goodness, last point here, okay? This will be quick, I promise. Up connects you to God. In connects you to one another. Out connects you to the world. Last part of this verse here. Look at this. Verse 47, they were praising God. They were having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, how in the world were they having favor with all the people? Well, this early church wasn't just a a, a bunch of disgruntled people that were angry and protesting and boycotting everything wrong in the, in the city they were in. If you would have asked the unbelievers, the pagan unbelievers in Jerusalem, hey, what do those people over there do? They would say, well, they gather together, they love each other, they have a strange feast that they share called the Lord's Supper or Communion. Uh, we think they're cannibalistic, we don't know. But uh, uh, they serve the poor, they pray for one another, they meet the needs of one another. Do you think something like that would make the world who's living in darkness sit up and take notice? You better believe it would. And it did. And it still does today. The power of community. It attracted the world. Now listen, we're not under any illusion. We know the message offended the world, but the lifestyle attracted the world. You see, there's paradox here. The world loves what we have in here, guys, and they would want it, and they're looking for counterfeit versions of it. But the very thing that created it, the message of Jesus coming to save sinners, offends them. Offends them. But there's still a power to be unleashed there. Francis Schaeffer said, love is God's final apologetic to the world. It is. This is a place where Jesus becomes more real to us and consequently probably more real for other people. They see the way that people who had nothing in common are able to unite and serve one another. 
But it is a sacrifice. You have to take the risk of being known before you have the experience and the joy of being loved. That's what community groups do. So how's all this possible? Closing here. How can we have this community? Well, check this out. This is where the cross comes in. The only way that you and I are able to experience Christian community was for Jesus Christ to hang naked on a bloody, splintered cross outside the city, excommunicated, banished, right? And for him to experience uh, the loss of community. Think about this. From all eternity, Jesus had been in perfect fellowship and communion with his Father and with his Spirit, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But on that cross, Jesus hung alone, naked, in darkness, in agony. And the one time in all eternity that he prayed to his Father and his prayer wasn't answered, right? He said, my God, it wasn't my Father, it was my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus experienced the hell that you and I deserve on that cross. He was abandoned, forsaken, deserted by his Father. That's what all of us deserve. We deserve to never experience that true community. Why did Jesus do that? So that you and I could be brought in. You know what's interesting? In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they were banished, they were sent outside the garden. This is fascinating to me as just a a, a Bible, not a scholar, but somebody that explores uh, the text. And it says that there were stationed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, you remember this? Cherub with a flaming sword. Interesting, right? You know why? Because Adam and Eve wanted back in. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want back in that garden after you were kicked out? And God said, no, you can't come back in here. And if you try to get back in, there's going to be an angel here with a sword of flaming justice, and he's going to hack you to pieces. Now, check this out. But eventually, we were able to get back in fellowship with God, right? What happened? How'd that happen? You ever wonder that? Somebody had to go through and get hacked to pieces with God's sword of justice. Wasn't me. I don't belong in here in this community. I didn't didn't suffer the consequences for my sin. You know who did? Jesus. Jesus on that cross experienced God's flaming sword of justice. He was hacked to pieces, didn't even resemble a man, experienced the wrath of the Father, poured out. You and I deserve that. He was our substitute. He stood in for us. We get his perfect righteous life. He gets our imputed sin. It's a trade-off. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He got the curse, we got the blessing. See, that's how we experience Christian community. That's how it's created, secured, anchored, and sustained. And that's why these people, they kept reminding each other of that. They never forgot that. They never got over the fact that God executed his son uh, so that his enemies could be brought in to the inner circle of fellowship. Isn't that amazing? 